Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And with me today, as every week, is Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Well, we said last week, uh, Simon, that it was uh, things were pretty quiet, but it hasn't been a quiet week for the investment trust sector, that's for certain, in terms of news and announcements. Uh, but let's kick off, as we normally do, by talking about the, the markets themselves. And uh, by and large, it hasn't been a bad week this week. At least uh, I noticed that Wall Street has uh, had a very strong week, but uh, maybe the UK hasn't done quite as well. Yeah, no, I think that's right. The, the UK market has lagged a little bit, so it will end in negative territory, probably down about. 0.1% or so. Uh, as you correctly observe, uh, America's done better. I think the S&P 500 is on a bit of a positive trend at the moment. And in fact, uh, the investment company sector has done okay as well, probably up about 0.7.8%. The sector average discount, um, it's still wider uh, than the average we've seen this year. So it's probably about 3.8% or so. That compares with the average of 34 uh, and just to give it a little bit of context, that the range has been between 2 and 5.7% so far this year. So still relatively tight levels. But it has been a better week for growth investors. Technology shares have done pretty well. As we mentioned, the US is on a good trend at the moment. And there's been some positive economic data out there. So US job growth data has been positive, but not to the extent where most market commentators feel that the central banks are going to be in a rush to tighten. So this is the, the Goldilocks scenario, not too hot, not too cold. Um, more difficult in, in Asia, actually. Um, apparently, there's some fears with regard to China and Hong Kong in terms of another flare-up in COVID cases, sadly. So the market uh, does feel a little bit jittery, and certainly trading volumes, as we've discussed in recent weeks, are, are down, as you would probably expect at this time of the year. Right. But in terms of uh, performance year to date, obviously, we've reached halfway stage in the year. And this is a time when people tend to look back and see what's happened. And uh, essentially, though, it's been a good six months for equity investors on the whole. There hasn't been a really bad uh, reaction so far. And um, over the six month period, how do your numbers look for that? Yeah. So look, I mean, the UK market's done quite well year to date. It's up over 11%. It was the first six months of the year to the 30th of June. Uh, investment companies, not quite as good, uh, but obviously they have that very strong outperformance last year, but still significantly in, in positive territory overall, probably about 6.9% if you look at the FTSE All Share Closed End Fund Investments Index, which is a bit of a mouthful. But uh, yes, a number of uh, investment trusts have, have performed well, delivered strong returns. I think it's probably fair to say it's those more in the special situations type category that have really delivered this year. So um, well done if you've backed names such as Electra or Drum Income Plus or KKV Secured Loan Fund. But equally, there are always some disappointments as well. So more difficult year for names such as Sincona and actually a number of the Japanese investment trusts uh, have struggled a bit year to date as well. Okay, so we'll move on. We'll talk about uh, corporate activity in the investment trust sector. And uh, there has been some this week. Let's kick off by uh, updating ourselves on the state of play in the merger between the two Brevin Howard hedge funds, BH Global and BH Macro. That's uh, BHGG and uh, BHMG. Uh, they also have dollar share classes. What's the news on that particular uh, front this week? Yes, yeah, so we've got uh, a bit more information in terms of the timetable for this. Again, I think, as you mentioned, we've, we've talked about this quite a lot in recent weeks. So I think it was just last week we found out the result of BH Macro's 40% tender offer, which was pretty significantly undersubscribed. Um, it was only 9% of the sterling share class, 6% of the US dollar share class. Uh, this week, we found out the timetable with regard to BH Global, which is going to effectively offer shareholders a cash exit or a rollover into BH Macro. So that's going to happen. Um, uh, effectively, it's happened on the 19th of July. The rollover will take place on the 1st of August. Uh, trading in the shares will actually be suspended on the 15th of July. And this should all be done and dusted by the end of August. So that was the development that we found out this week. It's subject to shareholder approval and there'll be an EGM on the 19th of July. So that one at least will be coming to a conclusion, as you say, roughly by the end of this month, at least, if not, we'll know what's happening earlier. What's uh, any more progress in terms of what's happened to the share prices of these two trusts? We said they'd, uh, the discounts are coming a little bit, but I guess there's some special factors when we're coming up to an event like this. What's been happening, if anything, on that score? 
So the discounts on both those investment companies are relatively narrow, as you might expect at the moment. So BH Macro, the the ongoing vehicle, uh, is trading on a very small discount, the sterling line, probably less than 1% of the dollar line around NAV. The BH Global uh, two share classes, the dollar and the sterling share class, probably between about a 1% and 2% discount. And obviously, um, there is that cash exit on the table at a small discount. So that kind of underpins that particular rating at the moment. And out of interest, we said that it's been a, a good year on the whole, on average, for the equity markets. And Revan Howard funds tend to be held by people as a, if you like, as a diversifier, does well when the markets aren't performing well. So how have they actually done over the last uh, six months uh, in NAV terms, at least? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, it's been a quieter period, I think it's fair to say. So uh, BH Macro is up just over 1, 1.2%, let's be generous, uh, with a bit of rounding. So uh, it has been a quieter period. And obviously, that's in contrast to what we saw in the first half of last year when the market sold off. And actually, uh, BH Macro and BH Global, to be fair, did, did uh, extremely well in that period. So they have a specific function that isn't particularly suited to this particular market conditions, I think it's fair to say. Well, we'll see what happens after they get uh, together. Let's move on now and talk about uh, an interesting uh, announcement from BlackRock North American Income, BRNA. They've had some results, but they've also been talking about their strategy. So fill us in on that one, Simon. Yeah, I'm just running through the results quickly. Um, so they had their interim results out for the six months to the end of April, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 28%. Uh, that was ahead of the Russell 1000 value index. That was up 27.3%. In share price terms, they did uh, a lot better, actually up 39.2%. And that was a reflection of the fact their discount tightened from 8% uh, to around NAV. So uh, what worked for them in the period? Well, it was positive stock selection allocations in the financial sector, being overweight banks and underweight utilities. And in terms of the income side of this story, uh, the earnings per share was uh, were down 17% uh, at 2.56. And they declared a dividend of 4p in respect to the period. So that's all kind of the historic bit of the story. What uh, is interesting going forward is that following a review of the investment objective and policy, the board of this investment trust is looking to change uh, the investment approach with the idea being that they invest in companies that show a commitment to achieving sustainable business models. So we've seen a, a number of instances of this across the investment company sector. Obviously, we talked about Dunedin Income Growth before um, Keystone moved to Bailey Gifford to do the Keystone Positive Change approach. And more recently, Acorn Income announced proposals to appoint BMO and follow a global sustainable equity income strategy. So this all follows that trend. In this case, BlackRock North American Income will continue to invest in North American equities, uh, and it will retain its focus on value and dividend-paying stocks. BlackRock, unsurprisingly, have its own kind of screening policy, which excludes certain companies, uh, and thereafter companies will be evaluated in line with uh, an ESG criteria. Uh, they're going to make the portfolio more concentrated between 30 and 60 holdings, um, and that will include some mid-caps as well. Uh, the dividend is going to remain part of the story, but they've said the fund will no longer pay a progressive uh, dividend. And uh, the name will change. The name will change to BlackRock Sustainable American Income Trust. Um, and there's been a change to the, the, the management team as well, which was really as a result of, of a departure um, so quite a few moving parts on this one. Um, this is all subject to shareholder approval, and that will happen at a general meeting uh, on the 29th of July. So what do you think lies behind this, Simon? Obviously, we know about sustainability becoming more fashionable, uh, and uh, a lot of fund managers are saying they're incorporated into their business models. But, uh, I mean, what is the history of BlackRock North American income? Yeah, I mean, this performance has been pretty indifferent. I think it has obviously got a value style. And it's an income fund, and uh, we know that fund managers do struggle often in the North American market. What do you think is going on here? Yeah, I think to take the issue of the performance, first of all, you're absolutely right. Kind of pursuing an equity income approach or even a value approach in um, US equities has been a really tough call over the last five years. Clearly, um, by going down that route, uh, you exclude a number of the kind of high-performing technology companies that we all know and perhaps own elsewhere. And that's been a real headwind to performance. So just to put numbers on that, BlackRock North American income is up 69% in NAV total return terms over the last five years. 
and that compares to a rise of about 118% for the S&P 500 index, so a significant outperformance. Though, to be fair, if you look at their subsector, so we've got North American Income and Middlefield Canadian Income Trust in the same space, they're actually ahead of those two names. They're up 55 and 57% respectively. So clearly not having technology, not having those high growth stocks, quite a big headwind. In addition to which, the BlackRock North American Income pursued a policy of option writing. So uh, effectively, they would increase their income element by selling away upside. Now, in the rising markets that we've seen overall over the last five years, that again has proved a significant headwind. So I think they've probably found themselves in a position where they're underperforming, probably struggling to attract a little bit of demand, although the, the average discount has probably averaged about 4% over the last year. And so they, I think they've looked around and found uh, a strategy that they think might get a little bit of traction in terms of uh, investor interest. And you know, ESG, it's always a talking point. And most people would say that there is demand for those kind of strategies out there. And as I mentioned earlier, We've seen a number of investment trusts go down that route, though, as I suspect, as we're going to come on and talk about later, it's not a slam dunk in terms of demand at the moment. Yes, I suppose it's fair to say I had a quick look at their fact sheet and their own benchmark they choose to measure themselves against is, as you mentioned, the Russell 1000 Value Index, which obviously measures the performance of fund managers with a or the market with a value style. And on that basis, looking at their sort of five-year performance, they're almost exactly bang in line with the with the benchmark. Uh, but in which case you might argue, well, why would you need an active managed fund to do that? So uh, maybe they're just not uh, making enough traction, as you say. So let's move on and talk about uh, another. Uh, here we've got a change of fund manager, not just a change of strategy. And that is uh, Genesis Emerging Markets. Uh, and uh, they've uh, been a big news about them this week. Yeah, no, that's right. So this week, Genesis Emerging Markets announced proposals to appoint Fidelity International uh, as their manager. Uh, Nick Price and Chris Tennant will be the manager and uh, deputy manager, respectively. They're going to look to reduce their management fee from 0.9% to 0.6% of net assets, and that will be subject to a nine-month uh, fee waiver. Uh, and the investment policy will be updated to allow investment in small and mid-caps and unlisted companies. Uh, and perhaps unsurprisingly, the name will change to Fidelity Emerging Markets. Uh, there's also a tender offer on the table as well of up to 25% of shares at a 2% discount to NAV. And going forward, they look to have a performance-triggered tender off in 2026 and a continuation vote every five years. Now, all these proposals are subject to shareholder approval, and there will be uh, an EGM in August that will seek that. So an interesting development. I mean, Genesis Emerging Markets is um, certainly a large uh, investment trust company in that space. Um, it's been probably off a lot of people's radars. It's had quite a low profile for a number of years. So the appointment of Fidelity one suspects is probably quite driven by not just the performance record of uh, this particular strategy, but also the fact that Fidelity is quite a well-known name amongst retail investors. And I suspect the board of Genesis Emerging Markets were quite attracted to that. In terms of the strategy, um, it's going to be not dissimilar to an open-ended fund called the FAST, which is the Fidelity Active Strategy Emerging Market Fund, uh, which is run by Nick Price and Chris Tennant. And it's effectively, it's a long short fund. Um, so just to get behind the jargon of that one, it will have a, a number of long positions. So that's just uh, positions that you would own on a normal basis. And that represented 143% of the assets of the open-ended fund at the end of May. And it'll have short positions as well. And those represented 44% of the open-ended fund at the end of May. So net-net, uh, probably around 100%. And certainly the net exposure of the investment trust company uh, the idea is it's between 100 and 110% going forward. So that's a different kind of approach that uh, you can find in the emerging markets subsector at the moment. So that's the differentiator. Uh, and they're clearly hoping that A, shareholders will be supportive uh, and that they get increased demand for their shares as a result of that move. Yes, it's an interesting one. I mean, it's quite a coup for Fidelity, I would say, to get a trust this big. I mean, 1.2 billion or something, isn't it? Something in that order. Uh, that's a significant uh, asset base to get your hands on. And uh, uh, it's interesting. I saw that Genesis came out with a kind of statement claiming they'd actually performed quite well. So they're probably feeling quite aggrieved about this. But as you say, maybe they're paying a price for the lack of effort they put into marketing the trust. I mean, the discount has been uh, quite wide, but it's come in quite a lot over the last year in common with one or two other emerging market trusts, I've heard say. But uh, how does its performance record look then compared to others in the sector? 
Yeah, no, it's a good point. So again, on a five-year NAV total return basis, uh, it's up 69%. And according to numbers in front of me, that compares with about 76% to the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. But that said, it's quite a way behind some of its largest peers. So you know, the two two largest and high-profile funds in that subsector, probably Templeton Emerging Markets and the JP Morgan Emerging Markets Fund. And certainly Templeton is up 104%. And the JP Morgan Fund is up 107%, so not too much in it between those two. But clearly, the Genesis Fund has lagged. And if you look at the shareholder base, it's quite interesting for a fund that is, as you say, it is quite large. It's 1.2 billion assets, a bit smaller than that in terms of market cap. But it's very concentrated with institutional shareholders, whereas uh, it's become clear in recent years that retail investors investing through platforms such as AJ Bell, Interactive Investor and Hargreaves Lansdowne have become increasingly important constituents of investment trust companies. Genesis seems to have missed out on that. And, and again, as I say, I suspect that was one of the uh, key reasons behind the board's decision to appoint them. Yes, I noticed uh, one of the large shareholders was uh, City of London Investment Management. I think they have a significant stake and that's also been an issue with uh, they've been active in a couple of other trusts that have been in their case, had issues with liquidity. So it's been an interesting one. I must say that surprised me, that announcement, but uh, it has uh, not performed as well as others. And uh, it introduces a big heavyweight into the emerging market sector. And I think it's the first time Fidelity of, uh, I mean, they've they've got a number of investment trusts out there, but they haven't uh, launched or taken over mandate for some time, I think. Is, is that right? Well, you're putting me on the spot, which is always a good place to be. I think the last time they won a high-profile mandate was Edinburgh Investment Trust, and I'm going to put a number on that. I think that was back in 2003-04. Right. So if my memory serves me right, then then they were probably overdue. Yes, and their other trusts, the Asian values, uh, the special values, and the European values, they all date back much further. So that's uh, that's an interesting development from that perspective, at least. Okay, so let's move on and talk about fundraising. There's been more news on the fundraising front, and uh, we won't be surprised to see that most of it is concentrated in the alternative asset sector space. But let's uh, quickly run through some of them. Let's talk about Bluefield Solar, first of all. This is one of the uh, original solar funds, BSIF. They are going to be doing some funding. Tell us about that, Sam. Yeah, that's right. So they've got an agreement in place to acquire 109 small-scale onshore wind turbines, uh, and that's for a consideration of about £60 million. And there's a potential for additional £35 million investment. Now, uh, in order to do that, they need to raise some money. So their £100 million debt facility is currently £90 million drawn, so they've got limited capacity there. So they're coming to the market to uh, raise £100 million at 118p per share, and that might be increased up to £150 million. So that issue price represents an 8.1% premium to their NAV at the end of March, and a 3% discount to their closing share price on the 25th of June, so just ahead of the announcement. So again, as always, it'll be interesting to see how they fare with this one. They last uh, came to the market to raise money back in November last year, uh, at which stage they raised £45 million. That was actually oversubscribed, and that was at a price of 124p. So this is at a higher price. But again, uh, it requires shareholder approval to do this, and that will be uh, at an EGM. And in fact, the issue is expected to close in mid-July. Right. Well, it hasn't escaped my attention that they are obviously diversifying out of solar into wind. I think they did flag this up, that they were thinking about doing that, uh, as I recall. Uh, But it's a good example, I think, of how some of these uh, renewable energy trusts are having to, if you like, kind of expand their mandates in order to continue to find assets that they want to own, given that the early subsidized solar plants are becoming a smaller percentage of the overall available capacity. So how do you think this will play with the uh, with the shareholders? I mean, it's, uh, it is a change in strategy. It's uh, related, obviously, renewable energy, wind and solar. But uh, do you think that's going to be well received? I mean, you make a good point, and it may get to the stage where they might need to think about changing their name so uh, solar income fund, um, hopefully the income bid is still accurate. But yes, they might need to think about that. But look, I mean, I think you're right. This is now starting to become a, a familiar story for these renewable energy infrastructure plays that various bits of the marketplace, there is limited availability of new investments or they wish to diversify their book of holdings and they're, they're looking to deploy capital in different places. So a good example of that will be JLEN Environmental Assets Group 
which started off very much focused on, on wind and solar and has really diversified out over uh, recent years. And uh, there are other examples of that as well. So at the moment, Bluefield is trading on a, uh, I've got it on an 8% premium. So the, the rating is still strong. So one suspects there is still demand. And if they can demonstrate that the investments, uh, the small scale onshore wind turbines are accretive and will add to the uh, income generation of this investment companies, then it would seem a reasonable bet that shareholders would be supportive. Yes. And uh, I mean, the big player in that area was the specialist wind energy I mean, it's Greencoat UK Wind, but that's not trading on uh, such a big uh, premium anymore, is it? No, that's correct. So we have seen premiums contract uh, this year to date. There still are pretty much all of them are on a premium to one degree or another, but they have contracted. So last year, um, the premiums probably got a, a little overextended and clearly the attractions of yield, relatively uh, decent levels of yield, plus the ESG angle, you know, you're investing in renewable energy, probably meant that they those premiums crept a little bit ahead of themselves. But you're absolutely right. So I've got Greencoat UK wind on a 6% premium or so, and that compares with an average over the previous 12 months of about 12%. So it, it has come down a bit. So you said they're raising money at 118p per share, and they're targeting a dividend for the year ending 30th of June of 8p. But if we project that forward, we're looking at a kind of yield of what sort of level, would you say? Yeah. So again, you're, you're testing my mental mass, but I'm going for about a 6.5% yield, between about 65 and 7% yield. Yeah, which is pretty reasonable in the current market, it has to be said. So let's move on and talk about uh, Gresham House Energy Storage. That's GRID, which is uh, in a more specialist area and one of the ones into which a lot of people are trying to move. What have they been saying they're going to do? So this week, they announced that they are also looking to raise some money. So essentially, the story here is that the, the, the last time they came to the market was in November last year. That money has now all been fully committed. But in addition to that, they've got uh, a pipeline that uh, they're looking at and they're obviously quite excited about. And in order to fund that pipeline, they're looking to raise £100 million via replacing at 112p. Now, that represents a 7% discount to the closing share price just ahead of the announcement and a 5% premium to the NAV as at the end of March. And again, when they came to the market in November last year, they raised 120 million, and that was at a issue price 105p. That was oversubscribed, that particular issue. So the placing closes on the 9th of July, and the new shares are expected to start trading on the 14th of July. I notice, as you say, that the uh, shares in the placing aren't going to qualify for the next dividend. But over the year as a whole, what aggression house energy story targeting for a dividend and what kind of yield does that represent on the uh, existing shares? Yeah, so my understanding is that they're aiming for a 7p dividend. And based on the current share price, that gives them a yield of about 6, 6.3%. So very much in the same range as Bluefield Solar. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about uh, an infrastructure trust. This is International Public Partnerships, INPP, who are also looking to raise some more money. Uh, absolutely. So they are looking to raise, again, £100 million. And this is through a TAP issue at 165p per share. That represents a 15% premium to their NAV as at the end of 2020. So a little while ago now, uh, adjusted for a dividend. So where they stand at the moment, their debt facility is about 56 million pounds drawn. Um, it's got a capacity of 250 million, but their near-term investments require around about 100 million. Um, they've got a number of investments lined up uh, and more to follow as well. So they're talking about a pipeline of 100 in the near term and 135 million behind that. So hence the need for additional capital. The uh, issue, the placing is due to close on the 8th of July with the new shares to start trading on the 13th of July. Uh, and they've also intend to introduce an additional tier to their management fee. So that will go from 0.9% to 0.8% for fully operational assets uh, above adjusted gross assets in excess of 2.75 billion, which just goes to underline how large uh, some of these infrastructure funds have got in recent years. But uh, International Public Partnerships, or IMPP, um, they last came to the market, I understand, I think this is right, at the end of 2019. So they're probably a little overdue compared with uh, most of their peers. They raised £73 million certainly at that stage, and that was at an uh, issue price of 155 spot 5p. So is it normal in these cases? I mean, they haven't uh, published an NAV since 31st of December, or is it just that uh, that's the one that you're referencing here? 
again, I think that will be the latest uh, NAV. It would be slightly weird to kind of reference off a, a, an NAV as at the end of a previous quarter. But yeah, they're a little bit out of date. I mean, you know, we are now in the early days of July. You would expect to uh, be working on at least a 31st of March NAV. So that is a little unusual. I think that's true. So let's move on. And now we mentioned this trust, or at least you alluded to this trust before. And this is the Lion Trust ESG Trust, ESGT, which is uh, trying to tap into demand for sustainable investments. But this is an IPO that is not going to go ahead. No, sadly not. So it was announced at the end of the week that the IPO has uh, been withdrawn after total subscriptions fell apparently just short of the minimum gross proceeds of £100 million. Um, so there was a bit of chat about how the board and line trust fund managers or fund partners were encouraged by the level of interest in the IPO and, in fact, the very broad spread of investors who subscribed to the initial uh, issue. But clearly, they didn't receive critical mass. So there's a press release from John Irons, who's the chief executive of Lion Trust, and he mentioned something about nearly 2,000 individual private investors who backed the issue. But clearly, they were lacking some bigger tickets to get them across the line of that £100 million. So I guess that's a bit of a reality check. I suppose uh, one of the issues here might be that um, you know there was a question we talked about how you differentiate a trust in this kind of market. Do you think that might have been a factor, Simon? They obviously Lion Trust run a very successful uh, range of sustainable investment funds in the open-ended sphere. Might that have been an issue, or was it just uh, that uh, people aren't going for this particular version of the strategy? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And and again, the the, the press release that came out from Lion Trust today uh, mentioned that the sustainable investment team, so that's Peter Michaelis's team, at the end of March they were managing ten point two four billion and that's increased from two and a half billion from April 2017. So that I suspect demonstrates that there is demand for this type of mandate, uh, but possibly the investment trust uh, wasn't differentiated enough, although there was quite a strong emphasis on uh, mid and small cap companies. And again, I think they were talking about a more concentrated portfolio. So that was how they were differentiating it. But I, I think the real story here is that it's just really difficult to launch an investment trust company, particularly for a long-only equity mandate. So, I mean, there are a number of examples that we can point to. We discussed at the time, back in December last year, how Schroeder's uh, managed to get two investment trust companies away, but both at £75 million, which was lower than um, I suspect they were targeting. So the British Opportunities Fund and the Big Society Capital Social Impact Trust both came in at £75 million. And even uh, ahead of that, I mean, you can go back over a number of years, a number of investment trusts have have struggled to get to the critical mass. Remember Mobius Investment Trust and Mark Mobius's vehicle that did make 100 million, but uh, Mark Mobius himself and members of his team had to put in quite substantial elements of capital to kind of get that one away. But I think that's almost the story here that um, whereas every now and again you do get a Smithson Investment Trust that, that comes in over 800 million, or you know, going back in the days, Anthony Bolton's Fidelity China Fund, which was a, a big success going back 12 years or so. But those are relatively rare, and most launches, particularly for long-only equity funds, are around the hundred million pound mark. And I think it then becomes, you know, are people, are the fund management groups happy to go with that and then try to grow them over the years? So even if you you take Bailey Gifford, you know, the, the good people at Bailey Gifford who have had a tremendous run now for any number of years, their launch, the U.S. Growth Fund, came in, I think, about one hundred and seventy-five million somewhere in that region. Uh, a number of years ago, and they were quite disappointed with that at the time. Um, I think they were aiming for about 250 million, and yet that has grown substantially. I don't know. I, I could tell you just very quickly how it's where it's got to today, but it's it's the point is that you get these things up and running, uh, and that's now got a market cap of um, nearly 1.1 billion. So it just shows that if you can get these things vehicles launched and they perform well, there is a lot of opportunity to issue additional shares. It's also a good explanation of why when uh, boards of trust uh, decide to change their mandates, they do get a lot of people coming along to pitch for the business. Because at least if you go pitching for an existing investment trust, you at least have a, if you like, uh, you hope to keep some of the money that's already there. You might offer an exit to people, but you're hoping to get, as it were, a springboard to get you part of the way to your target at least. So uh, it, is a, it is an interesting issue why uh, it is so difficult to, to get them launched, even if they then subsequently do very well by growing. So that is to say, disappointment for Land Trust there. Let's move on and talk about LXI REIT. This is one we've talked about very recently because they've been raising some money and I think they, uh, they're they not having a problem with demand anyway. 
No, they're really not. So Annex Hyreet, I mean, they told the market a little while ago they were looking to raise uh, $75 million. This week, we learned that that was being increased to $100 billion, and that was a reflection of the demand uh, that they were seeing uh, and also the, the debt for the investment pipeline. And then lo and behold, a few days later, they announced they had indeed raised $100 million under the placing. And my understanding is that it was significantly oversubscribed above that cap, and therefore they had to do what's called a scaling back exercise. But the placing or the issue price was at 133p. And as I mentioned, they have got an investment pipeline. So the shares, those new shares that will be issued um, will start trading on the 5th of July. So that's Monday. Well, just to emphasize that uh, it's uh, obviously much easier to raise money in the alternative asset sector at the moment than it is in the conventional equity space. We also heard from Urban Logistics REIT. This one has a ticker SHED, and they're intending to issue some more shares as well. That's right. They're looking to issue just short of 70 million new shares, and that will be at 155p. Uh, So they're looking to raise gross proceeds of about 108 million pounds. So that placing price of 155p, that represents a 5% discount to their closing share price just ahead of the announcement, but a 3.5% premium to their uh, adjusted EPRA NTA, which is the equivalent of the NAV as at the end of March. So this placing will close on the 9th of July. Uh, with the admission of the new shares uh, expected to occur on or around the 13th of July. But uh, again, you know, a lot of talk about the pipeline of investment opportunities. And apparently, in this case, the managers identified investments with an average net initial yield of 6.1%. Okay, so just before we move on, I should have asked you this before, but can you just uh, remind us what the difference between a placing and a tap issue is? Yeah, so a placing would be invariably where, as, as we've talked about today, the company will come out and say they're looking to place a particular number of shares and they'll give a price at which they're looking to place those shares. Now, in the case of, of, of a regular tap issuance, that's not subject to such a great fanfare. In fact, many investment companies that are trading on premium ratings will regularly what we call tap out shares. So they are consistently trading on premium ratings. So you can look at a number of those funds early in the Bailey Gifford stable or JP Morgan or something, Janice Henderson. They trade around uh, NAV on um, relatively modest premiums, one, two, three percent, and they will issue shares almost on a daily basis to the marketplace. And they do that obviously to grow the investment trust company, but also to ensure the premium does not become too extended. And I know we've talked about that in the past, about the dangers of the, the premium rating creeping up too high. Now, I asked that only because you said that uh, in the case of international public partnerships, they were looking to raise $100 million through a tap issue at 165p per share, which suggests that they didn't want to do it in kind of dribs and drabs, that they wanted to do it in one go. Is that, is that how that mechanism would work, or is that somehow different? Yeah, I suspect in that particular instance, it'd be a function of the size of the company. So they will have powers from their shareholders in order them to tap out a certain number of uh, of shares. And given the size of it, they can probably tap out £100 million worth of shares. Whereas when you do a large place and you have to go to shareholders to get permission to do that. So I think that's the distinction. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, so that's fundraising, still very active in the alternative asset space. But let's move on and talk about some results. And let's start with a trust we have mentioned quite a few times in passing as being of interest, uh, performed very well. And that is Henderson Opportunities Trust, HOT. It's hot, as we call it. Uh, And they've had some interim results. They have. They've had their interim results out for the six months to the end of April, in which time they generated an NAV total return of uh, just short of 57% that compared with a rise of 28.5% for their benchmark. In share price terms, uh, it was even stronger, actually, up nearly 82% as the discount narrowed from nearly 20% down to about 2%. So outperformance was a result of, well, a number of things, the kind of exposure to cyclical recovery and the, the maturation of early stage companies in the portfolio. And it's worth saying, actually, that this portfolio is run by James Henderson and Laura Fall of Janice Henderson, And I think we talked about this a number of years ago, that this was James Henderson unconstrained. It really is a kind of stock picker's portfolio. And if you actually look at what's performed well in the period, there's there's a number of different names, you know, in the alternative energy uh, companies, it's names such as AFC Energy, Series Power, and Alika, I think that's how you pronounce that. On domestic plays, it's Springfield Properties, it's the Jim Group and K3 Capital. And they also had a number of their media names do very well for them in the period, such as Zoo Digital Uh, and Next15 Communications. So for those people interested in UK equities, particularly those kind of mid-small cap names, 
early stage companies, then they're not short of ideas uh, in that particular portfolio. And I recall this trust uses gearing to some extent, as you say, and the uh, performance has therefore tends to be slightly more volatile than some other trusts. Uh, but the discount has been, uh, it came in quite a long way in the in the rally last year, but it seems to have been widening again recently. Is Am I right about that? You're spot on. So I've got it at the moment about 13%. And over the last 12 months, it's probably averaged 12%. But within that period, it's probably trading on a very small premium and been out to a 20% discount. So yes, it, you are seeing quite a bit of discount volatility. Yes, I know that uh, James Henderson was speaking uh, this week in an event, which I happened to listen to part of. And uh, he's one of a number of these UK equity fund managers who um, uh, are not only mentioning the fact that the UK market has performed relatively well, but actually believe that there's still more to go for in the future, given the uh, that the market looks cheap compared to uh, a number of other markets. Well, we'll see how that works out. But uh, clearly, uh, the last period has been good for them. Let's move on and talk about Marwin Value Investors, MVI. Yep. So Marwin Value Investors had its annual results out to the end of December last year. It seems like a long time ago, actually, the 31st of December 2020. In that time, uh, they generated an NAV total return of 1.6%. And that compared with a decline for the FTSE All Share Index of 9.8%, so a relative outperformance. It's probably worth saying at this stage that this is quite a specialist investment trust company. It describes itself as a sponsor of European listed acquisition companies, and certainly it's a hugely concentrated portfolio. They're also sitting on quite a bit of cash as well. So they've got six main holdings. I think cash is about half of the the portfolio. Uh, And there's a company called uh, Sigona Communications, which is by far their largest holding. Uh, Fortunately for them, that particular holding is up 43%. So it's a listed company. It's up 43% so far this year. But a very specialist investment approach they're trading quite a wide discount, probably about 34% or so, uh, but they decided to suspend their buyback policy and actually they replaced that by paying out annual dividends or dividends back to shareholders. So the annual dividend for that period was uh, 9 spot 6 p and that's paid actually on, on a quarterly basis. So can you just explain now, I mean, they, they talked about the fact that they have two classes of share and they're going to create a second series of what's called realisation shares. What is a realisation share as opposed to uh, an ordinary share in a company? Yeah, so and we do see this elsewhere, though it is um, relatively rare. I mean, it's the idea being that shareholders wish to exit and they may not be particularly happy with with the discount, the performance, whatever it is. But actually, realistically, it it can take some time to realise the underlying portfolio, maybe because it's a liquid or in this case, there are strategic stakes. So by creating a realisation share class, there's a kind of uh, implicit promise there that no further new investments will be made from that particular pool. But that over time, as and when proceeds are raised, then that will come back to shareholders. Yes, I think the other feature about that, which is perhaps unusual these days anyway, I, just, I think that it's a Cayman Island company, is it not? No, you don't see many of those on the London market. Uh, no, you could well be right. Yeah, and the vast majority of UK investment trust companies will be uh, what we call onshore, so basically UK domiciled, though there are a number of domiciled in Jersey and Guernsey. There are a few exceptions, a few Bermudan companies as well, which uh, one suspects board meetings for those particular companies might be quite popular. Indeed, they might. Uh, I think I was associated with one once where we used to go to uh, one exotic location for a board meeting, indeed. Um, Let's move on quickly from that then (laughs) and talk about some overseas results now. Kicking off with CC Japan Income and Growth, that's CCJR. I, you might perhaps mention who the management company is there and tell us about their results. Okay, yep, they had their interim results out for the six months to the end of April, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 17%, that compared with a rise of 8.8% for their benchmark, so outperformance. And they did even better in share price terms. Share price total return was up 24% as the discount narrowed from uh, nearly 13% into about 6%. So the outperformance was attributed to a market rotation and certainly the value bias of the investment manager, which is Coupland Cardiff Asset Management. A chap called Richard Aston has managed this one since launch at the end of 2015. So that value bias uh, worked for him in the period. Um, and it's also worth mentioning about the, the revenue and the dividend, because obviously that's a part of the story here. So the revenue return per share was actually down uh, 22% period on period to 2.22p, but they've declared an unchanged dividend of 1.4p, and the full year dividend is expected to be at least equal to the financial year of 2020. 
Okay, so let's move on and talk about uh, an investment trust, which uh, I like to remind people has one of the best 20-year performance records of any investment trust in the UK-listed market. It may not be one name that you're expecting, and that is J.P. Morgan Russian Securities, J.R.S., not for everybody this one, I suspect, but they've had some more recent results. And uh, what can you tell us about that? Okay, yeah, they had their interim results again to the end of April, in which time they generated an NAV total return of about 25%. That represented an underperformance, actually, for their index, the RTS index, which is up 31.5%. And that was a function of that they were overweight uh, materials, IT, real estate, and consumer staples. They acted as a, a detraction, as did being underweight uh, energy, financials, and industrials. The managers also continue to reduce the exposure to less liquid small caps as they tend to underperform in rising markets. But in share price terms, they were up 23% as the discount just widened out a little bit, and the board is committed to buying back at least 6% of the fund's issued share capital in the year. But the manager of this one as a chap, I'm going to get his name wrong, but it's Oleg Berliolov or something along those lines. Now, he's been the manager since 1997. He is, as perhaps my terrible pronunciation suggested, he is Russian. And to be honest, he is one of the more entertaining and charismatic investment managers that you might encounter on your travels and always provides some very good insight into Russia. So are there any other features of this trust that are noteworthy as far as shareholders are concerned? Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. I mean, probably one thing to note is that uh, in common with a number of the Asian and emerging market investment trust companies, it has a conditional tender offer in place. So in the case of JP Morgan Russian Securities, if its NAV underperforms the benchmark over five years to the 31st of October 2021, i.e. this year, then it's committed to holding a 20% tender offer. Now, um, when it started, so the 1st of November 2016 to the end of May this year, the fund was only 0.06% ahead of the benchmark. So that's definitely one to watch. That is a fine margin indeed. Would be a close finish indeed, uh, if it comes to that when they get to the next tender off of date. So let's move on and talk about some specialist trusts. We heard some interim results from uh, Chrysalis Investments this week, C-H-R-Y. This is the uh, company used to be managed by Merion, recently moved to Jupiter and specialises in investing in private companies. So what did they have to say, Sam? So they had their interim results out to the end of March, in which time their NAV was up uh, just ahead of 28%. In share price terms, even better, nearly up 35%. So basically, this portfolio of largely private companies is performing well. As the uh, commentary around the results suggested, many of the fund's tech-enabled companies uh, continue to take market share from traditional operators. And we've also seen a number of funding rounds for some of the holdings in the portfolio. So Klarna and Starling Bank would be the two obvious ones. And that was a key factor in the rise in the NAV performance. So they've been quite busy. The portfolio has only got 12 positions. Uh, and actually, they suggested that 47% of investee companies are uh, operating profitably. So a lot of these are still relatively early stage, high growth in terms of revenue, at least. Um, but post the period end, they've made some follow-on investments in WeFox and Starling Bank again. Um, there's a new investment in a company called Smart Pension, uh, and they've agreed to invest £45 million as part of Revolution Beauty's upcoming IPO. Now, that is a bit of a different deal for them, because I think that's the first time they've invested uh, or have agreed to invest, at least, in a company that's not private. So that Revolution Beauty is looking to come to the market. But they've got cash, or they had, I think, at the end of March, cash of about £150 million so they've still got a bit of liquidity to deploy. One of the other interesting things to note as well is uh, this has been run by Nick Williamson and Richard Watts since its launch in November 2018. But Nick Williamson is actually stepping back from managing his smaller companies listed fund to dedicate himself fully to Chrysalis. Uh, and I would suggest that that is quite an interesting development. They're also looking to kind of bulk up the team to ensure sufficient staffing for the next phases of growth. So this is a strategy and an investment vehicle that appears to have some momentum behind it. Yes, it certainly had a very good start to its life over the last few years, getting involved in these uh, exciting unlisted companies. Typically, they're kind of online digital businesses that uh, can get the same advantages of scale as you get from, uh, you know, you've seen happen with the very big ones like Google and so on. Uh, perhaps you could just explain, though, in terms of NAV, how do funding rounds get incorporated into NAVs? In other words, if people aren't particularly familiar with these uh, uh, private companies, what is the impact of a funding round 
uh, on the NAV? Yeah, no, it's a good question. So basically, the portfolio is made up of private companies. And there's always a question, how do you value those private companies? Clearly, they don't have a share price that you can just refer to. So one of the ways that you can value those private companies is as at the last funding round. So when these private companies go out and seek additional financing, it effectively gives what we call an enterprise value for the whole company. And from that, you can derive a value. So where funding rounds are at a higher level than they are before, and that's been the case in a number of those holdings, including Klarna and Starling Bank, then effectively that's given you an uplift to the valuation and therefore an uplift to the NAV of the investment trust. Yeah, so that's based on the premise that the people who are investing in the latest funding round know what they're doing and are not paying a ridiculous price to get in on the on the deal. But it is, as you say, the standard method. I mean, I think the other thing that's interesting about uh, Chrysalis is that some of their companies they invested in, they are getting close. Uh, I think in one case, they've actually reached the point where they're no longer requiring funding, but actually moved into the stage of being profitable and therefore won't require any further funding, uh, but continuing to grow very fast. So uh, that's been very popular. And Smart Pension is a technology platform. I had a quick look at that, which is basically uh, being marketed as uh, one you can use if you're a company having to deal with auto-enrollment in this country, that kind of thing. Uh, and it's a better kind of mousetrap, at least or so they believe, in terms of uh, what it offers compared to other providers. So Chris is very interesting uh, a trust, and I think uh, one that uh, has certainly been popular with a lot of people I talk to. Let's move on and talk about Polar Capital Global Financials. They've had some interim results. We mentioned that they have uh, succeeded in raising more money but how have they been performing? Well, they have their interim results out for the six months to the end of May, in which time their NAV was up 22.2%. That compared with a rise of 21.5% for the MSCI All Countries World Financials Index. And as we know, financials have had a good run recently. So over that same period, the MSCI All Country World Index is up 9.3%. In share price terms, they've done even better, up 24.1%. And essentially, performance has been assisted by the portfolio tilting towards banks, particularly US regional banks, uh, and also gearing as well. And gearing stood about 7, 7.5% at the end of June. So earnings per share came in at uh, 2.15p in the period. Uh, that compared with 1.57p in the corresponding period last year. And they paid out total dividends of 2.4p, so slightly uncovered. But as you just mentioned, they have been successful in, in raising additional capital. So they've issued shares, um, just short of 52 million shares from Treasury, raising 80 million pounds, plus uh, that C share issue that we talked about recently. But the, the management team there, so Nick Brind, John Yakas, and George Barrow, they're, they're still very positive about the outlook, particularly for bank stocks, actually. Uh, and they put that down to economic growth and the prospect of higher interest rates, while, in their opinion, valuations continue to remain attractive. Okay. And how have the uh, the shares doing since the issue and since the publication of these results? Yep. So they're trading at uh, about 167p at the moment. They certainly were at the close of Thursday, and that represented a 4% premium to their NAV. So certainly the rating uh, is is holding up. Okay. And the, uh, the C shares, they're trading now as well, are they? They are, and I'm going to have to click a button to find out where they are because I haven't got that in front of me. There we go, 100 spot 25p, all that effort. <laughs> right, so they're basically trading at par. Give or take give or take a fraction or two. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's move on and talk about Standard Life Private Equity, SLPE. They've also had some interim results. So Standard Life Private Equity, they had uh, interim results for the six months to the end of March, in which time they generated an NAV to return of just short of 15%. Uh, and that compared with a rise of 18.5% for the FTSE all share. But actually, in share price terms, uh, they did even better. They were up 38.8%. So uh, an interesting story, always a good insight into what's going on in the private equity industry. The valuation of the underlying portfolio in the period was up uh, just short of 23% on a constant currency basis. In other words, currency was a bit of a headwind. And the strong performance was attributed to the strategic exposure to sectors such as technology, healthcare, and consumer staples. This uh, investment trust also pays an enhanced dividend, and in this period, total dividends of 6.8p were paid. But there's an awful lot of investment activity going on, and, and just catching up with Alan Gold this week, he made the point that distributions, which were a feature towards the end of last year, last calendar year, have continued into this year. So in this particular six-month period, they came in at £93 million. They've also made some new commitments as well. 
But his point was that that investment activity, so in other words, holdings being sold uh, at the underlying level and new investments being made, it shows no signs of letting up uh, at the moment. One thing to note is that the board of Standard Life Private Equity is considering a change of name. And in the announcement, it noted Standard Life Aberdeen's intention to rebound as Aberdeen with no vowels included. Yes, that's A-B-R-D-N. That is the new branding of Standard Life Aberdeen. Well, I wonder if they will go all the way and take the plunge and, and rename themselves with that abbreviated word. I'd be very interested to see if I was a board member. I would have to think very long and hard about this decision. It would be one of the most important decisions I have to take. Won't change anything, of course, but uh, <laughs> it would be uh, interesting that they're considering it at least. Okay, so finally, on the results, we're going to move on and talk about Civitas Social Housing. We're going back into the alternative asset space. Uh, That's CSH, a trust that uh, invests in social housing, as its name suggests. So let's uh, hear what they've had to say. So they announced annual results to the end of March this year, in which time they generated a share price total return of 17.6%. And in NAV terms, NAV total return, they were up about 5.2%. Um, So that was all positive. Their property portfolio was valued at uh, just short of 960 million at the period end. And it consisted of 619 properties providing homes to nearly 4,300 residents. Their loan to value ratio, so in other words, how much uh, debt they've got on the balance sheet, that was uh, up about 34.5%. And in terms of their earnings per share, that was up again. That was up 6.5% from their previous year and that came in at 4.93p. So they declared dividends of 5.4p in respect to the period, and that was in line with their target. And in fact, they were looking to increase that again to 5.55p for the 2022 financial year. And that gives them a prospective yield of about 4.8%. So lots going on in terms of how they're moving this portfolio on. They're in discussions with the NHS, in terms of um, some of the initiatives that they want to make there. Uh, and they're also in discussions with E.ON in terms of a national program of carbon reducing energy enhancements and cost savings uh, across the portfolio. So quite busy in terms of portfolio activity. Yes, and this is a good example of a trust that is seeking to do uh, a positive social impact, you could say, because it's providing housing for the homeless and for other uh, families with difficulties. But it is uh, funded effectively by by the local authorities or the state, uh, ultimately. So the funding is relatively secure, which is what underpins their ability to, to gear up and to uh, to pay these dividends. Okay, well, that's just about what we've got time for this week. Uh, Simon, i just got time to mention that if you're interested in the Moneymakers Circle, we have this week got an in-depth interview with Hamish Bailey, who is the manager of the Ruffer Investment Company. Uh, he's got a lot to say about the way that trust operates and also about this burning issue of whether or not higher inflation is on the way. So that's that. But that's all for this week, Simon. Thank you for your time and help and look forward to speaking again next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.